guess what? We're doing a live show. Yay! <laughs> when is it? March 11th at Littlefield in Brooklyn. That is in Brooklyn. And this is going to be a live show with presenters. And it's all going to be about hair. Expect educational and funny uh, presentations, slides, clips, maybe some trivia. Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about everything from blondes versus brunettes, the ever-elusive battle, and uh, Beyonce, of course. And body hair. And much more. So we hope you will join us March 11th at Littlefield in Brooklyn. 8 p.m. And for more information, visit bonnieandmaude.com. Hooray! I've been to Vidal Sassoon. Don't tell me you paid for that. Guys crossed like two hot wires. We are just about the friendliest folks you would ever want to meet. That's Bonnie. I'm sorry, I was looking for Maud. Everybody has the right to make an ass out of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much. That woman, she took my car. This is Bonnie and Maud, the film podcast with Xenia Yarosh and Eleanor Kagan. Hi, you're listening to Bonnie and Maud. I'm Ksenia Yarosh. And I'm Eleanor Kagan. And we have a special guest here today, Caroline Gollum. You. Yes, you. She's making the, the motion of who, me? Who, me? It's you. Um, Caroline, thanks for joining us in the studio apartment today. Thank you for having me. And you brought to the table a movie called The Woman Chaser, which is from 1999, and we'll get into it in a moment. Um, but we want to know a little bit about you. You said you are... You are peripherally involved with many aspects of New York film culture. Um, you are a filmmaker, and you have a super cool series. Uh, please elaborate. Okay. Um, I am ostensibly a filmmaker with two movies that are in progress. Neither of them are done. And I am a programmer sometimes, uh, notably with a group called Cinebeasts, which is on a period of extended hiatus because our members are in graduate school or working. But I also do a little bit of personal programming on the side. I have a series called Bongo A Go Go, and it is a cinematic examination of the way that beat culture was portrayed in Hollywood in the 1950s and 60s. So it's three feature films, Beat Girl, Beat Generation, and Bucket of Blood. And each film is paired I love with Bucket of Blood. Excellent movie. Available in the public domain, which is why we're charging people five dollars to see it. Awesome. And each film is preceded by another public domain gem that is a slightly more accurate portrayal of what beat culture is about. With the exception of one of the shorts, which is really just an episode of Petticoat Junction, where Dennis Hopper plays a beatnik. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, by the time folks are listening to this, the series may have concluded, so they can find all of these films online. Mostly, yeah. Um, Beat Generation, Beat Girl, and Bucket of Blood are all public domain. The short films, Street Fair 1959, Village Sunday, and Petticoat Junction's Bobby Joe and the Beatnik were all taken from archive.org. So if you want to do a little <laughs> bit of hunting, you can find it very easily. But what the spectacle offers, in lieu of watching this stuff for free in your living room, is the camaraderie of seeing these films with 24 strangers in a former bodega, which awesome. is why I go there. Awesome. Um, and tell us a little bit about the movies that you made slash are working on now. Okay. 
So uh, the first film is a movie that started off as a short, and I wrote it with my best friend Chelsea Marks, and then it got away from us and became a feature-ish length film. <laughs> it's as called they do. yeah. It's it's probably going to be sixty minutes soaking wet. And... Sixty minutes. That's going to come into play later in this conversation. Oh, is it ever? <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's yeah. I don't know how long it's going to be. Maybe sixty-ish minutes. But it's called Getting Away with It, and it's about lesbian cat burglars. That are in a long-term relationship and are trying to get out of it. So it's a relationship drama, but it's also about lesbian cat burglars. So there's some (laughs) sexy robbery stuff in it. But it's also a little bit about classicism because all the people that they rob live in nicer apartments than them. And it's kind of a, you know, it's Bushwick plays itself is the only way I can describe it. And I know that makes it sound insufferable, but I'm I'm very proud of it. The second film is in pre-production right now, and it's going to be shooting somewhere upstate. We're Airbnb the location. Awesome. Thank you. And it's called Feast of Man, and it's about the wealthy only son of a scorned banking family who dies in a fiery crash, and his five closest friends are brought together by the family lawyer for a viewing of the video well. And in the video will, he stipulates that in order to inherit his vast fortune, they must consume his dead body. Oh my god. (laughs) Any sort of romantic movie that involves cannibalism is something I'm probably going to be a fan of. You will be a fan of this. If you like sumptuous wardrobes and locations and rich people behaving badly. I wish, is Helen Mirren in it? You know what? She'll be in the remake. I don't know if we I feel can like get Parker Mirren. Posey should be in it. She would be amazing. If you know how to trick her into being in my crummy movie, then, Parker, you know, if you're listening, we're call talking us. Of, we're thinking of getting Seymour Cassell to play the butler because apparently he'll do anything. Awesome. Well, from one filmmaker here in uh, the studio to another filmmaker in the movie that we are talking about this podcast... <laughs> We're talking about The Woman Chaser, which is a movie that you brought to the table, Caroline, under the very tantalizing uh, claim that it's the movie that made you into a woman. So I must know more. Did I say that? I'm pretty sure that's what you said. Okay. We're going to quote you back to you. (laughs) Great. But only in that one instance. But so The Woman Chaser is from 1999. It is directed by Robinson DeVore, who... The other film I was familiar with um, that he did was the documentary Zoo about um, men... People who have sex with horses. Mm-hmm. And what befalls them. Um, the movie stars Patrick Warburton, who you may know from Seinfeld as Putty, Elaine's on-again, off-again boyfriend. And it takes the form of kind of a noir-ish, a modern noir-ish movie that was shot in color and then converted to black and white kind of a small movie it never got a dvd release and it's about a guy who's a used car salesman who one day decides he wants to become a filmmaker caroline you have a relationship with this movie tell us about it i'll tell you that the first time i saw this film i was in probably middle school i know that i definitely was not out of middle school when i saw it i saw it late at night My parents had just gotten a really dynamite cable package that included the IFC and Sundance channels. These will continue to be themes in my work as I age, I'm sure. And I was looking for naughty stuff late in the evening, flipping (laughs) the channels, 
and something grabbed my attention. It was a movie called The Woman Chaser. And I thought, well, this sounds like there's sex in it, so I'm going to stick around. And boy, <laughs> is there ever. And that movie has got sex in every frame, even without sex in it. The whole movie is about one man's pursuit of anything that can satisfy this void within him. you know. And it starts off being satisfied by sleeping around and being really great at selling cars, but then a, a kind of larger existential chasm opens up that can only be filled by the very costly hobby of independent filmmaking. Which he manages to do in spades until the first person that says no to him kind of pushes him over his breaking point into madness, and by the end of the film, he sort of winds up where he started all along. But along this hero's journey, he meets a lot of crazy people and does a lot of crazy things. He actually kind of reminded me of Leonardo DiCaprio in The Wolf of Wall Street, in that he is a excellent salesman and can basically get anyone to do what he wants for him um, just by talking to them. Yeah, he comes away, I think, probably understanding a very fundamental thing about salesmanship, which is that you can talk up something as much as you want and you can get people interested in it as much as they want, but if they don't like the product that they come away with, then you're fucked. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're... You can yeah. swear on this podcast. I can swear on this podcast? Mm-hmm. Yeah, then you're totally fucked. <laughs> I mean, that's the product that he's selling in the film. You know, he he ostensibly is making a movie and he wants people to get into this movie, but what he's really selling is himself and his value. And he can convince women of his value as a man, you know, because of his sexual potency. He can convince customers of his value as a used car salesman because he knows his way around the lot. And he even manages to talk his way into getting a bungalow at this kind of, you know, it's unclear whether this studio is like a poverty row outfit or something a little bit more legitimate. But he talks his way into a bungalow at the studio and free facilities and all this other stuff. But, you know, like the film that he produces, ultimately, he's rotten on the inside and Mm -hmm. people can only put up with him for so long. And nobody knows what to do with him. Much like his film. They don't know what to do with the film either. I was intrigued by this movie um, because, you know, a lot of our show is about uh, femininity and the female perspective. And uh, what's different about this is the whole film is about not even quite masculinity, but the feeling of being emasculated. There are all these figures in this film. There is a former um, army sergeant. Um, There's a studio producer even car salesmen, like all these people who were in very masculine roles who don't feel powerful at all and are sort of undermined and powerless. There are a lot of kind of gender politic things about it that I totally didn't pick up on when I was 14. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. (laughs) So when you saw it as a kid, did you think it was just like cool? Did you think it was funny? It was just a groovy movie. It was titillating? It was... Largely titillating because there is some, you know, pretty brusque treatment of human sexuality in this movie. I thought all the sex was so boring in it. It's boring, but it's like, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. I didn't find it. They're all power plays. It is very power play oriented. And maybe that's kind of what resonated with me erotically when I saw it. Because when I was, you know, when I was 14, I wasn't thinking like, oh, you know, this sex isn't particularly interesting or heady. I mean, I'm sure it would be arousing to me if I saw it as a kid. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
But the thing about the sex in this movie is that every act of sex is transactional. There is, and none of it is romantic or even that erotic at all. Yeah. There's the sex that he has. Well, okay, so first there's the weird uh, familial angle where there's his mother character, mm-hmm. who's maybe his mother, who She's greets him with mother. her top off. And then there's his stepsister, um, Becky, who asks who looks him... 30, but is playing 15. Right, who basically talks him into taking her virginity. He then kicks her out and says... I've saved her from emotional involvement with any man for a long time. And then when he has sex with his other uh, virginal character, the writing assistant, um, all of them are so he can give her something and feel like he is getting something back from her. I mean, there's even the scene later where he's directing an actress in his movie and she isn't playing the character right. And he takes her aside and basically gives her notes while they're fucking. I don't think he even gave her notes. He, he just, did give her notes. He's oh, totally okay. Giving her notes. Maybe he I was her, distracted. He makes her say the line over and over okay. again. And the line is, the children wear me out, Hal. Wow. <laughs> well, early on in the film, the character explicitly says that his sexual drive is at an all-time low. We clearly see that the woman chaser is not what this is going to be about. Mm-hmm. If anything, a lot of the female characters pursue him, um, which, I don't know, just repulses me more about him um he's not an unsexy guy in this movie though he i mean i would say unsexy is putting it mildly (laughs) actually (laughs) he i mean he is kind of lumbering um but he is all about swagger and that's part of being the salesman is he basically Mm -hmm. exudes this confidence and this masculinity Mm -hmm. like you were saying ksenia that makes him undeniably attractive to people yeah, I think mm-hmm. the movie is basically how one privileged white guy got his groove back. <laughs> you know, he feels... That's he, a really good way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, he gets run out of San Francisco and, and is sent to Los Angeles to open up a used car dealership for this guy, Honest Al. Okay, that's his <laughs> life's work. But you have to wonder about his life and what it was like before he became a used car salesman because when he goes home, he goes home to this very kind of rarefied bourgeois environment. You know, his family lives in Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. They have servants' quarters that he occupies later. His mother is a former ballet dancer, and his stepfather is a former Hollywood wunderkind who I think, I suspect, may be based on Billy Wilder, at least aesthetically, because he does bear a really uncanny resemblance to Billy Wilder. Well, the fact that he lived in the servants' quarters and this kind of aging prima donna definitely made me think of um, Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's, there's a lot of that consciously referenced in the film, faded golden age kind of Hollywood stuff. Like even, you know, the studio that they go to to make the film is is on its kind of last legs. Like you mm-hmm. can tell, I mean, it's got a, a hokey name and you know, all the, all the people that work there seem to be kind of fly by night. And- Even just like the boss that they meet, it's this aging man who is coughing himself to death. So he is in charge, but he's clearly like crumbling. It's interesting. I think the movie also, it, it's about a lot of stuff. I mean, it's about, you know, male anxiety and it's about mid-century America, but it's also about, I think the end of movies or what people thought would be ultimately the end of movies, at least in Los Angeles at that time, because, you know, they they approach the studio with this story that's really daring and exciting. The first cut that you see of it is okay, but it's too long. The music is really cheesy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
Richard goes and he cuts it himself and he brings in this, you know, kind of caricaturist old blues man to play some low down blues over the music. And it's really abrasive and stuff. And the way they respond to this totally out there movie is not like, you know what, this might get butts and seats. They think, what the hell, let's make a TV show out of it. You know, well, part of that has to do with the fact that they're so obsessed with the rules of how a movie is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Um, They're saying a movie is six reels of films. It's exactly 90 minutes. And he turns in this movie that's 63 minutes. And that creates like the central conflict that eventually drives him mad and drives him to destroy not only his movie, which is his masterpiece in his eyes, but the entire movie studio, which he ends up burning down. Um, And then what I liked was that this movie itself, The Woman Chaser, is exactly 90 minutes. Ah, I didn't notice that. (laughs) I think that's really smart. And I wondered what that was trying to say. Because they wanted to take It felt padded. (laughs) A little bit. It felt like the last 30 minutes. Like they edited back in 27 minutes. (laughs) I don't know. Like the last 30 minutes totally lost me. It was this film studio bureaucracy and just so much conversation about I I mean I know part of it is like he has to keep his integrity and how will this conflict work out but I just I was not interested maybe they did pat it out I don't know I read the book after I saw the film so it's based on a novel yeah it's based on a pulp novel by an author named Charles Williford who I was reading about today and actually I have in my notes more than just a hard-boiled pulp helmer so he spent some time in the service. He left his first wife sometime in the 1940s and went to school in Peru. He published volumes of poetry. He's very prolific. The Woman Chaser is apparently one of only three adaptations of his work. But I had a hard time tracking down the book when, it, you know, when I first saw the movie 10 years ago. But I've since seen so much of his work available, I think because... Um, there's a publishing company called Black Lizard Press, I think is the name. I could be wrong. That does like pulp stuff. They work very closely with the LA Review of Books. Uh-huh. And they've been republishing a lot of the you know, a lot of his stuff that, that was dime store fiction when it came uh-huh. out. But, you know, in twenty fourteen you've got to go back and revisit everything because everything's got value and so a lot of the stuff that people wrote off as kind of derivative genre fiction has since been revisited and lauded and and people seem to like it i saw that he i mean i know he wrote pulp and not sci-fi but he was sort of compared to philip k dick in that way i think yeah kind of like a hired gun like i feel like this is the kind of guy that would get paid like a certain amount of money per page Mm -hmm. and as a result he just has this dickinsonian tendency to crank it out and be really wordy Mm -hmm. i have to reread the book because i don't remember it at all i'm curious how true it was to this story yeah yeah me too especially because I wondered halfway through this movie why it was called The Woman Chaser. Because, of course, he has these relationships with various women throughout the movie, but it isn't the central goal or conflict at all. I think it was just one of those things where the publisher put, you know, a sexy cover and a catchy title on a story that didn't really have that much to do with it. I, I, I think that happened a lot. Every once in a while, you see um, a cover for 1984, where it's like this really busty woman on the cover. <laughs> really? Like, what? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense, but that's that's what they did to sell books. I don't think that anybody would have been like, oh, a movie about a used car salesman who wants to make a 60-minute movie as the culmination of his you know, entire feeling of ennui. Yeah. Sign me up. It sounds great. <laughs> well, I think part of what makes that so appealing is Patrick Warburton and how 
great he is in this movie. I, I imagine, because I don't know anything about the production of this film, I've tried to find interviews with the director, I haven't found any. At one point in school, I found his email address and I hit him up on AIM <laughs> and told him that I liked the movie, but I didn't get any other information from him. But I think that, I, I don't know, I fantasize that the making of this film was like this weird kind of meta experience where it was very similar to the story itself. Mm-hmm. I could very easily see somebody, maybe the director or, you know, because it it's an auteur film. It was written and directed by the same guy. Of course. Auteur is in quotes for those of you listening. <laughs> and so I think that maybe he, I fantasize that maybe he like picked up the book at like, you know, Circus of Books at Sunset Junction, and it was like some sleazy pulp thing, and he read it and he thought, God damn it, this is my story, and I want to make this movie. And I saw it, and I thought, God damn it, this is my story, even though I have nothing in common with this 40-year-old guy who sells cars for a living. (laughs) What spoke to you so much about the movie? Before we go back to gushing about uh, Mr. Warburton. Well, that (laughs) that was a part of it. He's, I mean, he's very attractive. And when I said, like, this is the movie that made me a woman, I think what it, what I meant is that, you know, up until that point when I was, you know, late middle school, early high school age, my tendency toward men had been safe, teeny bopperish, you know, your, your Leif Erikson types, your, uh, you know, your David Bowie's, you know, your, your Judd Nelson's, just like cute, hairless dudes. And then I saw this movie with Patrick Warburton just tearing ass for 90 minutes, like (laughs) wrecking these housewives and filling out these giant dinner jackets. And I thought, wow, I gotta get my hands on something like that. My favorite Patrick Warburton part in this movie is in the dance scene where he and his mother are about to dance together. I pranced, he says. Um, He starts to unbutton his white button-down shirt. And I was like, oh, he's wearing a black t-shirt under it. Nope, that was his chest hair. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I love that my favorite scene that's like most it's not even like a memorable scene in the movie it's just it's right at the top of the film and it's very indicative of who he is it's him after he opens up the car lot and he's drinking in the pool at his dingbat apartment and he just goes to me and then drinks (laughs) in the pool so that was a huge part of it was like from a sexy standpoint but also the film was shot largely in the San Fernando Valley, which is where I'm from. A lot of people, when they think of San Fernando Valley, they think of Fast Times at Richmond High, or they think of P.T. Anderson movies. Or Clueless. Clueless, they only go to the valley for the Val party. Clueless takes place in Beverly Hills. Valley is like a whole nother, it's the Queens of L.A. It's like its own weird enclave that shouldn't be part of the city. Chinatown is like the best valley movie ever, because it's all about the rape and incest and murder that went into colonizing it. But it's a film that like very, very intentionally glamorizes this stuff like these dingbat apartment complexes with stupid names ranch houses with rocks on the front like in the flintstones you know and kidney-shaped pools and ugly bowling shirts but it romanticizes like an ugly stucco discount version of it it's not like swingers it's not like the mask what about slums of beverly hills like that whole aesthetic yeah that like shitty la you know like that sun bleached like condo look that people don't think about when they think about this era. And another thing that I love about this movie is that it takes place in this weird period of time that at the time I knew nothing about. It takes place sometime in the 50s or 60s. I kind of was into that stuff when I was a kid because of the beatnik thing, which Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier. But this was like a a homegrown aesthetic culture. And it, it was like a very beautiful L.A. plays itself movie that doesn't do a whole lot to glamorize it. 
It's L.A. and it's like it's that show. It's super goofy. There yeah. are numerous moments where it's like, it's not quite a comedy, but it's definitely making fun of itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it knows exactly what it's ripping off and what it's sending up. Mm-hmm. Um, the film noir and the language, you know, the voiceover that Patrick, his character is Richard Hud- Richard Hudson. Richard Hudson. Richard's voiceover throughout the whole movie is so deadpanned and so, like, it's so knowing. I mean, exactly in the dance scene where he says... I pranced. So we danced, Mother and me. The longer I danced, the better I became. I chased. I pursued. I made impossible leaps and came down as lightly as a wind-wafted cigarette paper. I pranced. Cavorted. Darted. Turned. Glided and did a mad foute until I almost lost my reason. I don't know again how much of that is is just taken directly from the book, or how much of that is a kind of you know ironic like '90s self awareness that the mm-hmm. filmmakers were applying to the story. But they they do an excellent job of towing this line between taking the film very seriously, taking its subject matter very seriously, and and really revering the people that are in it, mm-hmm. and at the same time poking fun of that whole kind of noir male aesthetic. And one of the things I put in my notes that I think bears mentioning is that it predates Mad Men by like a decade, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it touches on a lot of very similar things. This kind of, you know, mid-century, man in the gray, flannel suit, anxiety of like, you know, I'm a man, but what does that really mean, right? You're taught when you're growing up, and you were probably taught growing up in the 1930s and 40s, that as an American man, you could do anything, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here this guy is, when we first meet him in the movie, he's, he calls it clocking iron. He's counting how many cars are driving down La Cienega so that he can become the best used car salesman he can be. So for his revelation about third of way, a third of the way through the movie to be like, you know, oh, I've got to do something but I'm not talented enough to paint or write. And I do love that moment a lot where it's like, yeah, I, I have to feel accomplished about my life beyond just selling cars and I have to be creative. Like, I feel like that's not a jump that a lot of male characters make in movies. It's like, oh, I have to be creative. And so he like goes through this mental list of like, I don't have enough time to learn an instrument. I'm not interested in blah, blah, blah. I know movies. I watch movies. I'm going to make a movie. Our lives were so short, so little time for creativeness, and yet we wasted it. That even slipped through our fingers. My goddamn sin! But that was it. Creativeness. To create something. And then maybe two things. But above all, one thing. And at that very moment, I knew what I was going to do. And he writes this story that is like this character that is is a surrogate for him in such an obvious way, but it's so entertaining to watch. It is. The Man Who Got Away is the name of his movie, and it's about a truck driver who's been driving from San Francisco to L.A. over and over again, which, of course, is just the journey that he himself took. Um, and the truck driver one day runs over a little girl and her dog and then is on the run from the law. I love that 
before he runs over the little girl, he like goes home for a break and his kids and wife are driving him crazy. So he actually, even though he has the day off, he like calls the dispatcher and is like, I want to get back on the road because he can't stand to be at home, which is like another like needle in my feminist heart. Like, it's just like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's so hard for you. (laughs) I thought it was all about attention. Okay, now, here he was a nobody. Now, all of a sudden, he's the most important man in California. Everybody in the state's interested in him. He's done something! Roadblocks are erected, but he plows right through them. You know, the in the climactic scene of the movie within a movie, there's been a huge chase scene and there's a barricade and like hundreds of cop cars and they light the truck on fire and he staggers out still alive only to be shot to death by like he's like on fire and then they shoot him and And then somebody puts him out (sighs) and then it's all a plea for attention. The the people beat up the good Samaritan and then he staggers to the cop and and then he says, why did everybody turn on me? What did I do? And the cop says, you tried to help him. That's why. Which is such a, like, I don't know if you, you can't see this on the radio, but I'm making a big jerk-off motion because that is literally the, it's just, like, masturbatory, that, that ending. But I love that film because yeah. how often do you get to learn about a superficially unsympathetic character through their art in a film that happens to be a film and it's... It's really telling. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a there but for the grace of God go I thing. Like Richard Hudson could have been this poor schmuck with some busted wife and a bunch of crummy kids driving back and forth between LA and San Francisco, checking in on the lots and clocking iron for honest owls. It's only because he was fortunate enough to be born of these like weird incestuous art people in Beverly Hills that he's managed to have the wherewithal to rise above this. But I think that he feels still even though he comes from this weird background, he feels a connection to, you know, this workaday guy, this truck driver. The title is a clue to the whole damn movie. Now, as far as the theme is concerned, the movie is about America, Mr. Average American. The hero is a truck driver. And this truck driver's desire for attention, even in the form of committing a murder and becoming a fugitive, is because that guy doesn't have the capacity to think, I've seen a lot of movies. I know how to make a movie. It's almost like Richard Hudson's character is, I mean, he is very clearly, I think, drawing a parallel between him coming from a place of privilege and advantage and having access to this stuff versus somebody who isn't so lucky. Mm-hmm. And where does that that desire to be recognized and that desire to be appreciated go when you don't have the outlet? Apparently, it goes into running over a small child and becoming a wanted man on the 101, you know? And everything about the making of that film, that is where the movie transcends from, like, a middling, okay 90s indie into something that is very special and memorable. Like, Mm. there's a whole sequence where he talks about the art of filmmaking while he's clearly coaching the girl with the dog. Mm -hmm. It's multiple slow-motion shots layered over one another. I really like beautiful shots. Amazing stuff. And it culminates with him posing in front of of the the truck and and doing the direction. Mm -hmm. And that scene ends on the actor, you know, playing the truck driver going, thumbs up, you know. He's moved by it, and that guy's just some schmo. Or the scene where he first tells Leo about the film. You know, he... it's, It's a pretty easy shot to to go to if you're if you're filming somebody talking it's steady cam you know revolving with him around the room the idea being that he's pacing the room and that we are leo's pov and watching him talk and the way that he talks about this movie and it's as much a credit to patrick warburton as it is to the writers and the director 
but he talks about this movie and it's like you're sold. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, I look, if you told me, hey, Caroline, you want to go see The Man Who Got Away? It's a movie about a truck driver who kills a little girl. I'd Actually, I'd probably go see it. But, <laughs> but if you told me about it, you know, just like that, I'd be like, okay, whatever. I, you know, that sounds okay. But to hear him talk about it, I think it's because, you know, Richard Hudson, Patrick Warburton as Richard Hudson as this director, he buys so much into that story. Yeah. Like, you can really tell. And that's such a hard thing to convey in a movie about people who make art. I mean, I, I think about, you know... Uh, Lust for Life as like a great film about the artistic tendency or the artistic compulsion. I think about um, Adaptation as like a, mm-hmm. a kind of contemporary but one. But there are like truckloads of movies about writers and filmmakers that are just garbage. Yeah. This movie's not one of them, which is miraculous. You'd think it has all of the odds stacked against it. It's a movie about an unsympathetic white male character who has every advantage handed to him and is nonchalant and totally bored. Mm-hmm. Uh, and who's kind of an asshole to boot. Kind of. He's a huge asshole. He's a huge asshole <laughs> to boot. But he's so likable, right? Like, don't you root for him even though he's a huge dick? Yeah, exactly. That's, I mean, that's skill. I, I don't know how much of that is the director. I don't know how much of it is Patrick Warburton and how much of it was me loving the shit out of this when I was 14, but that's a huge part of it. Watching this movie again years later as a feminist but also as a filmmaker is like a, a total mind fuck for me because when I first saw the movie I'd never made a film before but I knew I wanted to make movies and I thought here's a movie about this guy you know I can relate to him at least on a very basic level of we both want to make movies yeah. we've seen a lot of movies we know what makes a good one <laughs> we don't want to learn an instrument what are we going to do with ourselves and we both live in LA it's kismet so I watched this movie and I thought, I get it, man. I want I to make a weird movie that's 60 minutes and nobody likes it and I don't care and, blah, and take the reins and, and seize the means of production and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, his independence is admirable. It's very admirable. Especially, like, especially to any budding artist. Yeah, exactly. Or any teenager or any person who has a creative drive. I mean, he's kind of like a giant teenager too. And I do want to talk about that in a minute because there is a teenager flashback scene in the movie that's oh, yeah. awesome. But I saw this movie at the time and I was like, oh, this is excellent. I want every part of this. And then I rewatched it again. This movie is like, I mean, it's misogynistic. I can say that without air quotes. No air quotes here. This movie, I mean, you could have called it the woman hater. It would have been the same fucking movie. You know, which is actually what came up with Matt. um, Oh, when he looked for it on Hulu. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Did you mean woman hater? Not that Hulu found anything, but. It just wanted to help. But didn't you mean the woman hater in a way? Because that's, this movie is about a man who hates women. The only woman that he loves in this movie is his mother, who is weird city. She's a faded ballerina who's got with all that Norma very de- perky breasts. With great tits and like that Norma Desmond beauty regimen. She's excellent, but you know, she never said no to him. And she set this standard for him in all of his dealings with women where they must yield to him. Whether it's the Salvation Army woman who wanders into the gay bar that he goes to later, or his, you know, 16-year-old stepsister, or the housewife that he gets to play the housewife in the movie, the writer's assistant, anybody. There are women in this movie that can't say no to him no matter what. To watch this film as a woman and as a feminist with very little sympathy for, you know, big white guy crying... It was really weird. I was afraid I wouldn't like it. I was afraid that it wouldn't hold up. But I still feel like, you know, all the women in this movie, they're not unsympathetic. They're a little caricature-ish. But they're all complicit. You know, like it takes two to tango. 
the fact that Becky busts into his guest room and is like, you got to fuck me because I don't want to lose it to anybody else. And she's like 16. That scene is like, it's kind of devastating to watch because you know she's misguided, but kudos to her for trying to go after it. You know what I mean? <laughs> and when he goes on the date with his writing assistant later, she's like, here are the rules. You may touch my breasts. You may, I'm sorry, you may fondle my breasts, but not but that's it and kiss me but not too wet and she has these very clear rules because she's still a virgin and intends to keep it that way until he talks her out of that well he doesn't talk her out of it he reads t.s Eliot while listening to night on bald mountain <laughs> and has this like again you could draw like another Mad Men comparison between like him and like pete campbell's like crying in front of his sound system mm-hmm. i don't know if you guys watch Mad Men, but yeah. it happened so you know he has this like transcendent like male weeping moment of and what a cool way to do it like this is a guy who like reads T.S. Eliot and listens to but is also like this big lug yeah but really right T.S. Eliot I think he said he glanced over the pages he flipped through the pages once <laughs> well whatever now but that he's an artist it. you know he's he's more tuned into that wavelength no it's totally a tool for seduction and it's like the 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 type of masculinity that we're looking at in this movie is the kind where when you deign to show any emotion or vulnerability be it a put on or be it actually genuine that is like you know the tool into a woman's heart and pants but isn't it i don't know i mean yeah but it's not even like he read the poems to her or played music for her it's like that's what pushed him over the edge and made him realize like he had to have sex with her and so he like drove back to her apartment and helped her lose her virginity or whatever. And wept. He wept and then did it to her doggy style. What a class With act. like a gigantic shadow above yeah. them. Like You don't even see it. I love how unerotic those sex scenes are. Like you brought this up very early. Obviously I had some sort of erotic connection to this movie when I was a wee lass, but whatever. The sex scenes upon second viewing are not sexy at all. Doggy style in silhouette. I guess so. And then he, like, screws that actress on the couch. There's nothing sexy about it. And I think what's interesting, too, is that, like, this guy's, like, desire to bed women, I feel like you could almost connect it to his desire to make art in that he's just compelled to do it. It's Yeah, it's, like, on his to-do list, like, just get it done. And he wants to be the best at it. Yeah, it's another thing that he can be the best at. Women are something that he can conquer. Cinema is something that he conquers. Selling cars in a Santa suit is something that he could conquer as well. Mm-hmm. What was interesting to me is the scene in the gay bar. Uh, he says, burning down the studio made me thirsty. So he walks into a gay bar. He makes very clear um, how not uncomfortable he is in that environment. And then there is a woman walking around getting collections for something. Um and he ends up basically paying her to sleep with him and can't go through with it. And she's, he, she's 53 years old. So she's an older lady. And he can't bring himself to sleep well, with her, he even though he's already paid her. he just to prove that anyone can be bought. I think that was the mm. whole point of it. He didn't necessarily want to have sex with her. He just wanted to feel like he was right. I mean, he is. And in a way, it kind of confirms his own theory about about Leo, you know, Leo takes the sweetheart TV deal and throws him under the bus because of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, it confirms that, that the world really is as ugly as he thinks it is. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of, of his opinion of how ugly the world is was wrapped up in that film. You know, that film was a poison pen letter to the all-American man and the all-American family. And, you know, if you really want to dig into it, you could argue that, you know, 
this guy got a raw deal in America's post-war economy. I'm sure he does all right selling used cars and stuff, but it's not the uh, the glorious return that he was promised. And I don't remember if this was included in the book, but you've got to figure a guy who's in his late 30s in the 1950s probably was in the service at some point, too. You know, I think that it's a film about a lot of the failures of what had been promised to a very specific generation of men, and they have to seize their power through different means. Mm -hmm. That could be, you know, fucking Salvation Army representatives or, you know, (laughs) doe-eyed young screenwriting assistants or making a really cruel film about murdering a child, but you've got to get your power where you can get it. And I think what's really interesting about this is that I, I still, even though this movie is cruel to women and, you know, kind of weirdly executed, like shoestring budget movie. And and the older I get, the less I am able to relate to it on a political level. I still feel very connected to it on an artistic level because of, of the, the things that it turned me on to when I was younger, like this whole, you know, uh, lounge music thing and, and that whole aesthetic of like, you know, low-slung houses and ugly apartments. And also because having tried to make a film already and trying to make another one and trying to find meaningful work and doing all this stuff, like I really, I don't know, I, I identify with this guy. He and I are like night and day. He is a fictional man from the 1950s who likes to you know screw around and make people's lives miserable and prove himself right and i'm just a sassy girl who likes to screw around and prove herself right but i feel i feel like a kinship with him i don't know i feel like he's like my weird spiritual brother because i've been in this situation mm-hmm. his compromise that he has to make you know he wants his movie to be viewed as a legitimate piece of cinema mm-hmm. and back then that meant playing in a movie theater And at 60 minutes or 63 minutes, they can't do that. And he feels so slighted by the possibility that they could cut it down and put it into television and whatever. He refuses to compromise. But today, if you're a filmmaker, you're making that compromise every day. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't kid myself into thinking that any movie that I make is going to be playing at like some grand theater downtown and having like a big premiere. I'm happy if it screens at a place like The Spectacle or, you know, anthology or some kind of more community oriented space that's smaller scale and most likely they will live on forever on the internet you know and that compromise is something that you just deal with you know your standards shift the mediums shift and you just have to make that compromise and and you know richard hudson would never let his movie play full-length, unpassword-protected on Vimeo. <laughs> so maybe I should be taking a page from the Richard Hudson playbook. I don't know. But I think the Richard Hudson rule is that if you set your standards too high, you'll ultimately be disappointed because the world around you is cruel. You know what? I feel like this movie, better than a lot of other things that I encountered in my youth, totally prepared me for that lesson <laughs> on so many, so many fucking levels. Like, the... The feeling of existential uselessness and, like, the desire to create without having the means to do so and, like, the frustration that you try to supplement by screwing around and, like, having a day job and throwing yourself into that and, like, dancing and and just being comfortable. Like, I feel that. I don't know. You know, it's funny because I didn't have a previous relationship with this movie at all, Um, but it also spoke to me and I also really liked it um, almost despite myself because the first half of the movie 
was a little slow for me and as we have discussed the female characters are um offensive at least horrifying at worst um but by the end of the movie i was so on his side and i wanted his film to succeed and i don't know if it was just his determination and the way that he knew the right thing to say to get people to believe in him but i was completely enthralled by it and i also didn't even mind the horrendous treatment of all the women in the movie either um perhaps because it felt the whole movie felt really dreamlike to me i mean part of the shooting in color turning it into black and white watching a crappy vhs rip um made it feel like a dream and so while i didn't feel like these were real people being treated in a real way it still felt important and like it had a perspective on human relationships yeah the film you it it shouldn't succeed as well as it does i feel like i agree it definitely has a deck stacked against it you know it's a late 90s independent film that was shot for very little money but one of the ways that it succeeds is because it like richard hudson totally believes its own hype Mm -hmm. i love that i love i can excuse bad supporting actors i can excuse purposefully awkward dutch angles like every third (laughs) shot in that movie is like a weird like low angle shot or whatever i can excuse all that awkward stuff because the people that were making this movie totally believed in themselves and they wanted to bring something cool and different to the table like they they weren't making the same movie that everybody else was making in 1999 they were making a period film that was adapted you know fairly accurately from a a forgotten pulp novel you know before it was hip basically i think it's a very hip film i think it does a, a great service to forgotten corners of los angeles that have been overlooked that you know got some play during the swing revival in the 90s but for the most part people don't really pay attention to and i think that if you are at least doing something different and at least committing to it without you know uh being uh i i wish there's like one word for eye rolly but you know not being too eye rolly about it not too winking you know they're not they're not setting up these people and going like oh aren't they just terrible can you believe this guy they like buy it they really feel for all this stuff you know patrick warburton buys that role he owns this part so well and i think he is so underutilized the fact that most people know him as David Putty and that Southern Californians know him as the narrator of the Soarin' Over California flight simulator ride at California Adventure at Disneyland and occasionally the voice of Buzz Aldrin in the video games is like <laughs> I think he's also on Family Guy. Is he on Family Oh, yeah, he plays Joe on Family Guy. Yeah, like, fuck Family Guy, whatever. Um, I don't think this episode will be complete without mentioning the fact that... Um, this is this movie is sort of the perfect example of why we shouldn't necessarily mark movies by um, the the Bechdel test. Exactly. Oh, I love the Bechdel test. Which I mean, yes, I want more female characters, and yes, I want more female um, filmmakers. But a feminist movie doesn't necessarily equal good movie, and a sexist movie doesn't necessarily equal bad. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there are you you can look no further than classic Hollywood for that because there are countless films that we love and revere that are very very 
uh, very old-fashioned? Old-fashioned in their treatment yeah. of women. I mean, think about any time you've seen a Preston Sturgis movie where a woman gets a spanking. A grown woman gets a spanking. And not in, like, a fun way, either. In, like, a <laughs> oh, sad God. way. You know, or any, any time you have a, a, you know, someone like Judy Holliday playing a dumb blonde, you know, or anything. I mean, th- you couldn't do that today. Also contemporary movies. Yeah, or any contemporary movie where <laughs> dumb Kate blonde. Hudson plays the dumb blonde. Yeah, it's just transposed a little bit. Yeah, exactly. I love that you're naming all these things that, like, I'm sure all our listeners are familiar with. <laughs> I'm sure they are. Your re- listeners are a very rarefied group. I'm sure they've seen a Preston Sturgis movie. Sure. I think that this movie is an excellent, like you said, example of how a sexist movie doesn't always equal a bad movie. And I would... Take that a step further and say, you know what? When it comes to the struggle for artistic expression and validity, we are all in the struggle together. Male, female. And everything in between. And everything in between. We all want the same things. We all want to be heard. And, you know, maybe... Feel fulfilled. Maybe this, you know, older white guy has been hurt a little too much, but I still feel bad for him. Now is this the second sexist movie on the podcast that we have found value in the first being the andy sedaris film hard ticket to hawaii <laughs> um have you seen movie. it yeah it's yeah. a great movie and it has it's a beautiful exploration of uh the empowerment that two female friends can gain for one another with or without their tops on <laughs> hey man mostly without i don't think that having your top off should be a hindrance to you as a friend feminist Whatever. Mother. Mother. Anything. Former former ballet dancer, whatever. <laughs> Rock off with your top off. That's so, fine. Caroline, you hinted that you have a Patrick Warburton story of oh, yeah. uh, interacting with him. Do tell us. This is like, this also is a huge part of the reason why I love this movie so much is because it's a kind of like an only in LA story. But right after I saw this film, I was, like I said, I was obsessed with it. I taped it off the TV. I've actually like called my mom on numerous occasions and been like did you find my tape but i wrote the name of the movie on in highlighter so i'm sure it's like completely (laughs) faded so i was like so hot for this movie i couldn't stop watching it it was like my favorite film for all the reasons that i just talked about for the last 45 minutes and one day i was walking around in hollywood how old were you at this point i was probably like 14 or 15 maybe i was 14 years old i was walking around in hollywood near the man chinese theater so in like prime Hollywood area, because that's where I used to take the train to go to high school and, and bum around. And I'm walking down the street with this friend of mine, and we had just watched this movie because I showed it to her, and I was like, you will love this, because we were into all that lounge tiki crap. And I saw Patrick Warburton walking down the street, and I turned to my friend, and I was like, that's Patrick Warburton from The Woman Chaser. That was We didn't know him from Seinfeld. We didn't know him from The Tick. We were just like, oh my God, it's the guy from The Woman Chaser. And she said, you got to go talk to him. So I ran down the block and I said, Patrick Warburton. And he turned around and he said, yeah. And I said, I loved you in The Woman Chaser. It's my favorite movie. And he said, aren't you a little young for that movie, young lady? You should go see The Tick. I think you would really like The Tick, which is like a show that he was on for a long time that people really dug, the live action version of The Tick. Still haven't seen The Tick. I hear it's great. But the cool part about this story, the like little coda is... A few days later, like within that same weekend, I was at my friend's house, the same friend, we're walking around, we were garage sailing in Venice, which is like, you know, the hippie part of LA. I know which one, but the most hippie. (laughs) And we were flipping through a bunch of CDs and lo and behold, I found a promotional copy, not for resale, 
<laughs> of the Woman Chaser soundtrack. Oh my God. Believe me when I tell you, it was totally beat. It was like a single sheet, no liner notes, like a single printed sheet in the CD case. <laughs> like the cheapest possible printing you could have on the actual <gasps> CD. I hope I still have it at home. Oh I have God. I have the, the soundtrack like on my computer. But it lived. Can you send it to us? I can totally send it to you guys. I, I loved the soundtrack. It was the best part of the it movie, was a right? Great soundtrack. It uh, set me off on this whole K hole. Uh, really? Really? You didn't I love really the soundtrack? Loved it. That music is like it's this weird. I, I've subsequently like done a lot of like research on this kind of music. It's called Exotica, mm-hmm. and it's basically music that was made. It was engineered to be played on hi-fi sound systems. Mm -hmm. And it is exactly the kind of bullshit that you would put on if you were like some big dude trying to screw some lady and she came over to your house. Exactly what the movie is attempting and possibly succeeding to do to us, the viewers. Absolutely. I loved that soundtrack and Amoeba Records opened up like a year later and I went in there and I bought all that stuff. I still have all those records of like Les Baxter, Martin Denny, and Danielle Lupi, who was the music supervisor for this film, has subsequently gone on to do a lot of great work in mm. this era, like uh, Catch Me If You Can mm. oh. and a bunch of other movies that I can't name right now. Well, I could listen to Caroline for hours, but I think we should wrap it up. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, and I hope that people use whatever creative back channel they can to track down this great movie, and I hope to God that somebody gives Robinson Devor money to make another movie. And also for the people who take the lesson of this movie, which is to just fucking make something if you feel the drive Even if to you have something. to burn it in the end. <laughs> Even if it involves committing arson by the end of the movie. Sure. Yeah, whatever oh, it takes. Maybe we should have our lawyer look over this episode before we release it. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, don't do what we uh, do as we say, not as we do. Oh. Do as we do, not as we say. Anyway, uh, Caroline, where can people find you if they want to hear more from you? They can find me on Twitter, where all geniuses live, at symbol Caroline, C A R O L I N E, Avenue, A V E N U E. Awesome. Um, and Ksenia and I are here in Bonnie and Maud land, and you can write to us at bonnieandmaud at gmail.com or call and leave us a message at 530-79. Is that right? <laughs> Did you guys get a custom I, I phone number? I have to look it up every We time. have a Google Voice, and you, people can leave voice messages for us. Um, and it's very exciting and we may play them on the air like we did in our last episode. We had a caller from Tel Aviv. How cool is that? Oh, Mazel Tov. Yeah. Merci. Wait, that's French. Anyway, um, that number again, 530-MOD-79 or 530-628-3379. Give us a call. Thanks for listening. I've been Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Xenia Yorosh. Hello, make a movie pop. Yes, Richard, it would make a movie. Then how much would it cost, rock bottom? You're going to write the scenario? Yes, and direct it. I want you to produce it, Leo. You're the producer. You handle all the dough, the details, the paperwork. But your chance to get back on top again, Pop. Let me sleep on it, Richard. Do some figuring with a pencil. We'll talk some more in the morning, all right? I had him hooked, and I knew it. Oh! <laughs>